Hello and welcome to the Liminal Gallery podcast with me, the founder and director of Liminal, Louise Fitzjohn. podcast is an opportunity to speak to the contemporary artists I'm exhibiting in my Margate-based art gallery. With an exciting programme of solo and group exhibitions, hosting this podcast is a fantastic way to delve deeper into the artist's practice and to probe their innermost thoughts about their exhibitions. Liminal Gallery was founded in April 2021 and works with contemporary artists currently practising across the UK and Ireland, showing the incredibly diverse creatives that are based here. I've been working in the art world for over a decade and I'm incredibly passionate about fully supporting the artists that I work with and I spend most of my time trawling through social media to find artworks which blow my socks off. The artists I work with have an approach which I haven't seen before, a unique talent which spans across the mediums. I'm so excited to share these artists with you as we have in-depth conversations exploring the artists' lives and works into what makes them tick and what gets a ticking off. So I hope you'll join me both on this podcast and down in Margate where you can see the exhibitions of these artists in person. I'm delighted to share that the 12th guest on the Liminal Gallery podcast is contemporary artist Cedric Christie. Cedric Christie uses found industrial materials such as snooker balls and scaffolding pipes to make deliciously tactile sculptures that explore the boundaries of modernism and minimalism. The spherical snooker balls with their seductive high gloss surfaces and vivid hues provide Christie with a ready-made palette with which to paint his three-dimensional forms. They appropriate the sensory allure of the manufactured consumer object. His works explore the interplay of tension and harmony between coloured surfaces, as well as an in-depth examination of line and form. His dormant fluorescent light sculptures, painted in vibrant solid colour, remain dark, forever turned off, which allows us to study the construct, to ruminate on the origins and mechanics of this everyday material. Cedric Christie has held solo shows and public art commissions, both in the UK and internationally. His work can be found in significant institutional and corporate collections, including Art Gallery Nova Scotia in Canada, Derwent in London, Brown Rudnick in Boston and London, Bupa and the Groucho Club in London. Recent commissions include substantial sculptures in contemporary architectural settings at 40 Strand London and the peak Victoria London. He is currently exhibiting at the Biennale Architectura in Venice, Italy, and has previously shown work at Documenta Germany, Flowers Gallery, among many others, and he is represented by Rocket Gallery in London. Cedric Christie, thank you so much for joining me today. Great. <laughs> yeah. And happy birthday. And happy birthday. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. So I wanted to start at the beginning, which seems to start in your interest in welding. Can you tell me how you got there and what sparked your interest? Do you see what I did there? Sparked. Okay, look out for me. Um, it's, it's a very, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? My, um, my father taught me to weld. It started with welding. So my, my, 
career profession was as a, as a welder. I then met Amelia, and she inspired me to make sculpture. We then very, you know, fortunately moved into Shoreditch and just happened to be there just, well, before the whole thing started. So it was kind of like this kind of derelict part of London that we were living. And we met lots of other artists or other people who happened to be artists living there. And they all then become my kind of apprenticeship educationalists, if that's the, yeah. You know, there was a guy called Gordon Fold, Sarah, Luke, you know, it's just, it was just amazing to be around these people and to be able to like just tug their shirt and go, what's that about? What's that mean? What does this mean? And, and just grow from the conversations and, and watching and watching them pursue their kind of their ideas through their work was just inspiring. Going, wow, this was just incredible for someone like me to be able to see, but to be so close to it, to be so close to all their ups and all their downs. And and you know, and just learn. It was literally on the job education, on the job learning. It's like an apprenticeship. It just happened to be that all all the people teaching me were artists who had already gone who had gone through the educational system, and then were sharing their ups and downs with me. So you said that your dad taught you how to weld. So that was your trade initially until you moved into Shoreditch. Yeah, that was my trade initially. When I moved to Shoreditch, I could weld, and then so I used that as my. That's what I could do. So I started to constructing sculptures from, with steel and welding them and being very excited by them. And also very, you know, I didn't come from a place where you would appreciate something purely for the beauty it had or the the energy it resonated. So it was really, I remember the first sculpture I made, I, I wanted to turn it into a mirror. I couldn't believe something could be, didn't have a use as a physic, as an idea. It was a very big challenge for me to go, what, that's just all right being that and not it not, not having a function was very tricky for me to understand. And, you know, to a degree, it still is slightly tricky to understand in a different way now. You know, with the state of the world, way things are going, and then there's still this beautiful place that's available for things to like contemplate, to think about to like music to listen to and not be able to sing along to but just to hear it the opportunity of that is like a massive gift and so when you're in Shoreditch was that the time when there was just nothing in Shoreditch it was literally when we moved to Shoreditch Amelia was scared because it was so derelict and so I went to a police station and just said look is there crime against people here or is it and they said no most of the crime at that time was through breaking into offices and stealing fax machines oh wow (laughs) <laughs> and um, there was hardly any crime to, against the people. And the only people living on Charlotte Road was Alan Cox, who passed away recently. He lived on Charlotte Road. And and that was and, and an architect called Andrew Mishkin. Well, I don't know something to Andrew. He was on Charlotte Road. But that was it. Wow. <laughs> Pretty desolate now is just totally unrecognisable. It is. But it's one of the, it's one of those unrecognisable things, isn't it? That, you know... I didn't experience the, the the transformation of Covent Garden in my lifetime, 
but I have watched the transformation of, of Shoreditch and Hackney. And it's quite an amazing thing to just witness rather than hear about, to go and go, oh my God, look, oh my God, this thing here. It's, it's it, you know, it comes, it comes with loads of pluses and it comes with loads of downs. You know, you, we all want to go back to nostalgia and go, well, I wish it was like that. But I think nostalgia is something that's like, it's very dangerous. It's very easy to weaponize and to go, but you don't, you don't want your medicine to be nostalgic. <laughs> you want the latest technology, <laughs> but you want, you know, but you want other things to be nostalgic. And you're going, oh yeah, I want nostalgia. And you go, well, let's have a, let's have a look at medicine. Or dentistry. That is such a good analogy. <laughs> I'm going to remember that one and use that in future because you're <laughs> so right. <laughs> And so, yeah, it's been amazing just watching the movement of the place and the movement of the people that were in the place at the time and and being a part of it, but being an observer to it as well has been very, very fulfilling in that sense. And so what brought you onto using found materials like your scaffolding pipes and snooker balls, fluorescent lights? The snooker ball piece came about, which was very interesting. I made a piece using rope and I was, it was very exciting. And I was in an exhibition in the old Merrill Lynch building in Kensington. And I went there with a friend of mine, a guy called Andrew Capstick. And he was a lot cleverer and, and very well read. Very sad story. But anyway, he's very well read. And he, he, he kept, we went to look at this show and he wrote this incredible text about my piece. Um, he was telling me about Plato, talking about Plato. And I came home that evening and, uh, and he was still with me. And I, and I said to Amelia, Andrew's been telling me about Pluto. And he went, no, it's Plato. <laughs> and he wrote this incredible text that was um, how Plato became Pluto around my work. And what had happened at the time, I'd, I had a, a pool table in where we were living in Charlotte Road. And I'd placed a piece of work on the pool table and we were eating at the other end. And I just looked down at it and the ball just went, it just kind of like, you know, just went wow it just banged at me for whatever reason and um and then I remember saying to Andrew I'm gonna look at that that color thing is so beautiful and he just said oh we'll just do something and then and then let's not talk about it and then I just went off and investigated what a snooker ball is what snooker is so the first piece I made with the snooker ball was the maximum break as an object which is the sequence so it was in a steel channel and it was a and um that was the first time I used the snooker balls. And, it, and and then in using them, you know, if you hold one or see one or, or touch one, they are everything perfect in colour. You know, it's the right red, it's the right green, it's the right pink. And I like the idea that there wasn't a thousand different shades of it. So it literally tied my palette into this kind of, these are the nine colours. And now the snooker ball manufacturers supply a couple of other colours they make for me. So that's, it's grown onto that. But it was just that selection that the palette was of such that I could really dive into it and really start to fuck with it. And you said that the first one you did was the maximum break. And that's like when you pot certain colours in a certain way so that you get more yeah. points. Yeah, you clear the table, but there's only one black. So the black gets replaced on the certain point 
and then you have to keep. So it's it's as strategic as chess in that way, that you're kind of calculating where you want the cue ball to come up. And it's quite beautiful. And it, and um, when you watch someone do it, it's like, wow, there's so much skill. It's very close to chess. And you're quite interested in chess as well, aren't you? You've made chess boards before. Yeah, I, I, um, I kind of got into chess because working with the snooker balls, I wanted to make a way that the people could actually get, one of the beauties of them is the weight. And in the work, you don't get to hold them individually. And I remember being going, it's such an annoying thing that one of the other beauties of this thing, this object, is the weight of it. So I wanted to make a piece where the weight, where you was included in that. And I came around by making a chess set where the pieces are engraved so both sides are one color so it's all white or all red all the pieces but the the piece name is engraved on top of it so both sides look identical and it's also playing with this idea that when you're playing chess and then someone who can play chess they can look at they can stand on your over your shoulder and tell if you're winning or not because of the colors and blah 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 but I wanted to go, if they're all the same colour, you can't really visually do that. So you've got to choose on what side you want to actually nail your cross to. Do you know what I mean? You can't go, oh, right. And snooker balls enabled that to happen. So it kind of, um, it solved two puzzles for me. It made people be able to hold it and feel the weight. And it made people, this idea of your belief and where you're prepared to stand on it rather than going, oh, like, Black's winning, I'll stand behind this person and cheer on. You had to kind of really try and calculate it and hold your hold your belief. So that was, yeah, that was a really good piece for me. It's interesting that you talk about weight because I think that, especially your snooker ball series, they look weightless. The way that they're just perfectly encapsulated between the steel on either side, there doesn't seem to be anything holding them in place. And it's like, how are they still there? How are they being held up? Yeah. And they do look weightless. Actually, at the private view, there was a kid there asking you how you made them. And you said that Harry Potter gave you a, uh, a spell. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, the wand. And he cast a spell <laughs> to keep them in there. <laughs> Bless him. That really confused him, didn't it? But even when I was installing them, the, the colored curve piece in the exhibition is so heavy. I couldn't pick it up yeah. by myself. You could, but I couldn't. And, you know, they are really, really heavy objects, but they just look so weightless when they're installed. If you know what? There's a couple of things that, that I've come across um, and they've really kind of sunk in without me realising. And one of them, you know, one of the artists who, you know, people say, who would you like to meet? And you don't really need to meet him. But one of the artists whose work totally fucks with me beautifully is Richard Serra. And then the other person whose work fucks with me beautifully is Anthony Gormley. And it's a, very, it's a very interesting idea because within the essence of their work, it's almost like the spark you spoke about has continued. Like Sarah tells a story about that um, David Hickey wrote in a, in a drawing catalogue where he's holding his father's hand and he goes to, a, to the shipyard, his father's a shipbuilder, and he goes to the shipyard and he's holding his father's hand and he's like five or seven as a kid. And he, and he sees this thing on the land and it's this massive, dark, immense thing. And then it gets launched onto the, into the water and it just becomes buoyant. And it just trans, that transfer 
of something so solid to something so light. For me, it's what Sarah, that spark is what Sarah has been getting to the fuck with the whole of his life. That moment, and you stand in front of her, Sarah, or you look at the drawer, and they have this moment of heaviness, but balanced very delicately. And, and Gormley's the same. I heard him on some radio programme. And it's quite funny with Gormley for me, because I don't know the bloke, never met the bloke. You only come across him through ideas of other people's ideas. So I go, well, I don't know. Never had an argument with him, never fallen out, never met him. But so you have an idea and you go, would you want to hang out with him? I don't know, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't really matter. But the work, some of my mates go, really? I'm going, he had this, he went on some trip to India. And I kind of get this, like when I lived in the Caribbean and he saw people laying down with a transistor radio by their head, just listening. And it happens a lot in the Caribbean. You go to a bit of a transistor. And he spoke about the shape of their body just under these blankets. And then he came back and he, and he is somewhere in North London. He got some of his friends and he cast them with fiberglass. And you suddenly realise that one moment is the continuation. It's his spark is constantly at the fuck with that. And it's just, and, and that is admirable. When you get that spark, and, or for me, I look at it, and I could be wrong, but it's, it's kind of, it doesn't even matter if I'm wrong because it's been a really great fuel. It's been a great log on the fire for me to burn. Do you know what I mean? And 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 I've taken from it what I've wanted from that, and then I've and then I've placed this on it. So it's quite nice to hear you say that you feel that there's that moment in the snooker ball pieces because it's really you know installing the work, installing the show, and then looking at it, it's been like a massive head fuck in a really beautiful way because you normally think as an artist you're investigating the world you're doing this you've got you know you're taking in ideas you're looking at things you're rejecting things you're you know you're kind of making decisions and this show really has made me look and go fuck my work's investigating me (laughs) oh really yeah and that's like that's like going what the fudge do you know what i mean it's like my work's investigating me and i'm standing there looking at it going what whoa 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 we gotta slow this down it's all you know you know what i mean once i'm I'm kind of gone from driving the car to now i've I've got a big screen in front of me maybe it's a tesla or something i don't know it's i'm no longer driving it it's driving me and it's like whoa this is very interesting it's going gonna, it's gonna to be really, you know, it is already in the way that I'm already looking at different things or thinking about things differently since the opening of the show. Oh, wow, really? It's the aspect of going, wow, okay, this is like, wow, it's investigating me. So who am I? What, you know, who am I? What am I? You know, it's been brilliant, actually, in that thing of the question asking of my words of me. It's been like, whoa. It feels like just the start of the journey. I'm going, really? I've been doing this for ages. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And so you've never ever had that idea before? No, I've been very clear about the aesthetics I want, uh, the ideas I want. You know, uh, it's very clear to me. It's, 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 it's been very clear that me, I've been placing these things out there. You know, it's like a farmer puts the seed into the ground and it may possibly grow. And suddenly it's, it's the, the opposite round. The ground is falling <laughs> on me and now I've got to grow through it. <laughs> and that feels really like, whoa, I didn't see this challenge coming. You know what I mean? Like, Am I fit enough to do that? I might not be able to do that. Do you know what I mean? I could actually, 
get buried alive. No. No, no, absolutely brilliant. You know, the ability to foul is absolutely brilliant. It is like, you know, well, you know what, Cedric, sink or swim. Step up to this. And so while we're talking about failure and the show, tell me about how you came up with the name of infallibility, because I think that that's a really interesting story because kind of shows how naturally curious you are. And I think that that's something that is so rich in your work because you are a really, really naturally curious person, not just in the art world, but kind of outside of that. Yeah, so infallibility. Okay, so I'm going to try and give you the short story of it because it's, it kind of, there's lots of other people involved in this story that got me to that point, which is for me, it's part of the whole thing, you know, and it's been quite hard just to cut them out. One of the persons properly involved would be my daughter, Poppy, who phones, you know, I'm slightly off key, but I've got to try and show you how this happens. Do you know what I mean? Who phones me up one day and says, uh, she works in the film industry. And she goes, Dad, do you want to drive a minibus? I'm going, no. <laughs> Why would no? <laughs> and, uh, and and she'd met someone and she was going, and I was going, no. And then uh, I put the phone down. And I was talking to Kate, my partner, and I was going, it's one of those things, isn't it? You try and teach the kids that you can meet someone, something can happen, and, and and you can plant seeds and things can grow. And yet Poppy's called me, and I've just cut her head off. I've literally just cut her head off on that very idea. So I called her back, and I went, yeah, okay, Pop, yeah, this could work. Let's have, a, let's have a go at this. Let's see. You know, nothing tried, nothing failed. So she meets this guy, and, 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 Cam's, and this guy who I happen to know, and uh, who then calls me and says, like, I hear you're looking for a job. And I'm like, no, I'm not looking for a job. But, you know, and um, and he says, OK, well, it's straightforward, you know, blah, 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 blah. We talk about it. Then the phone rings again and someone says, do you want to start tomorrow? And I go, no, I can't. There's no, there's no way. And then and then what happens if they phone me back and say, OK, we're going to France for three weeks. Do you fancy it? I'm going, who wouldn't? France, three weeks. And you're paying me. Yeah, game on. So I go to France and I'm driving this van and it's like, it, I've never really driven before. So you've never driven before and you're driving a van. Yeah, I've never driven like in a sense of driving. It's really weird driving in a film because you just, when you're normally driving, you're going somewhere. So I jump in the car, I'm going there. This is, I'm taking something or someone somewhere. So that's a different driving thing. You haven't got to think this thing. And then when you get there, you just turn around or it's absolutely, it's a different type of driving for me it was. And um, so I buy some CDs and one of the CDs I buy is a theatre CD called Incidental. And it's called Incidental. And it's 12 composers doing things to 12 books and, and things. And one of them is absolutely brilliant. It's the story of the German Pope and I don't know if it's his words or the makeover, but it's brilliant. He's talking and he's going, you know, I'm 78 years of age. I had my birthday and I was talking, thinking about retiring and just living my life out. And then, he, you know, the Pope dies. He gets voted in. And he says this beautiful thing at 78. Who wants a new job at 78? Which is absolutely brilliant, in fact. You kind of go, yeah, a new job at 78 would be quite cool. That is not a bad thing. Maybe not the Pope's one. And then within the track, he retires. And in the in him retiring, there's going to be two Popes. And so the next voice is saying how there can't be two Popes. 
because of infallibility. You know, people need, you know, if you say something and I say something, that people will be confused. You know, the Pope's word is infallible. It's not to be questioned. And if there's two Popes, and I thought that's quite a beautiful problem to have. Do you know what I mean? And I was going, wow, the thing that something can actually be infallible. This is the thing. You know, I'm not, you know, a fan of organised religion. It exists, and I think people that need it, need it, and the people that don't, don't. That's absolutely fine. But this, the word just stuck into me when I heard it, and I just kept playing it, going, this is amazing. This is phenomenal, you know. So to, and to make a show that is just right, you know what I mean? It's just right. It's like, which has really messed with me, because it's come back to me and said, right, I'm going to investigate you. You know what I mean? So me taking this thing, the whole thing's just flipped over and going, right, let's see how right you are. So it's, it's so that's how I come to it. And so it's this CD called Incidental, Incidental Music. And I love it in regards to art as well, because art is there to be questioned. There's no right, there's no wrong in art. And that's something that kind of opens it out to everyone. But to say, yeah. this is infallible. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be questioned. Yeah, you can't question it. You can't question it. You can do what you like with it, but you're not. I'm not going to give you the space to question it. And <laughs> yeah, in which yeah. case, it's all questioning, isn't it? At that very point, it becomes all questioning, which is really lovely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've had a lot of people come into the gallery saying that it's very aesthetically pleasing. Yeah, it should be. But I think it's you know there is that thing, isn't it? About do you want to make something ugly, and then but then what is ugly? Do you know what I mean? What is ugly, and it's that. It's that beautiful thing. And we went to a concert last night and there was a singer, uh, they did a track by Thelonious Monk called Ugly Beauty. And it was really a be very, very beautiful track, which I'd never heard before, but it was called Ugly Beauty. And I kind of think that that's the constant challenge in what we call ugly. What is ugly? You know, and what we call beauty. What is beauty? Both of them are just constructs. Both of them are just ideas or something that most people have got from someone else. Do you know what I mean? So, so you've been conditioned, you've been raised in a certain yeah, way. And that's, and that's okay. And that's okay. But it's just like, question it. Why do I find that attractive or that unattractive or this aesthetically pleasing and that unaesthetically pleasing? What is it about me in that? I mean, I kind of touched on this earlier, but there is such a curiosity to your practice. And I find that I'm always so surprised by your works, especially coming to your amazing studio which is in a steel bending factory. <laughs> they literally bend steel, amazing. And just seeing all of, there's so many works that I um, wasn't aware yeah. of, like your dictionary uh, series, where you took pages of the dictionary and you just changed one meaning of one word, which I just love. And there's, there is that, that real curiosity where I feel oh, like yeah. you're not bound by one thing that you, that you explore and you take on the things that you just chat about in daily life and you're just playful and just play around with little different ideas. You did your photography project. Like how important to you is that idea of curiosity and the freedom for you to explore? I suppose, do you know, if I, act, if um, someone that the other day said to me that you're very curious, it's one of the things. And if I had to think about it, I'd probably stop being it. Do you know what I mean? I, if I had to labor, if I had to go, right, that's it. How do I keep this going? I think it's more about accepting that I'm not very clever so that I can, there's loads of stuff to learn 
rather than going, I know this and I know that. I'm kind of going, actually, I think that, but you could quite easily change my mind on that. It's not fixed. There's not this fixed position. So there's a st slight state of flux and a slight state of going, well, really? So she said that. And you go, whoa, right. Okay. And, and, and so within that, like the text piece, the dictionary pieces were very interesting because there's an artist called Mark Vogue who, uh, uh, you know, really, really admire. You know, I like what he's what I like what he's doing. I like how he's done it. I like how he speaks about it. He's absolutely brilliant. We play chess together, and one day he said this thing to me, which I just thought I was going, "What is going on?" He said, "Um, Cedric, tell me about your figurative work." I'm going, "What?" And he goes, "Your figurative work." I'm going. Oh God, the guy's losing it. I know he's old, but this is going, we're real, we real. Something's going wrong here. And I go, what do you mean? My frequency work. And he goes, your work using text. And I went, wow, I didn't see that coming. Didn't see that as text. So then I phone a friend, another artist called David Tremlett, who's of a similar generational, he was a student of Mark, he told me. And I said, David, I, I had this conversation with Mark and he said that. And he goes, well, of course he would. He would see text as figuration. And I'm going, whoa, that was a head blow. That was a head blow. So, so now I'm having to look at myself. But then I, sp I was talking to someone else about it, and he was very wise on it. And again, it was someone I played chess with. And he said, I, I understand what you're saying, but figuration, uh, text is more representation than figuration. But you could attach figuration to representation. And this was this really beautiful, yeah, head, head fudge, but beautiful circle that come about with me just being able to ask certain people, place that question back in front of them. And this whole idea evolved that I'm going, again, again, it's like one of them things questioning me, like, you know, now thinking about it. I'm making figurative work in the eyes of some people. And it's like, what is that about? And so, you know, when you're discovering that about yourself, through this process of making things, it's absolutely beautiful. You know, it's like, wow, this is like, I suppose it's like going to bed and then waking up speaking Latin. <laughs> you go to bed, you go, well, I couldn't speak Latin. And then you wake up and the first thing you say to your partner is, Omi Dimii or something. <laughs> What's going on? I mean, I speak Latin. I never knew that. What the fudge? So as well as being curious, you're also a people person. You know, already you've mentioned you kind of call up people and you run ideas past them and you're very open to people, I think, that you're open to other people's ideas that, you, like you said earlier, you're not, you don't have like a fixed point. You're open to other people coming in and changing your mind and, and having that discussion, having an argument. And I think that that openness has kind of given you some really interesting experiences and some projects. And I feel like you've done quite a lot of collaborative projects, probably because of that. Like, I always get this wrong. They sit, they come, they go. They sit, they come, they go, yeah. Yeah, I got yeah, it right. right. They, sit, they come, they go. <laughs> it's, um, it's, a, it's a project space I run with Pascal Rousson, who's a painter. And it's, I'm not a painter, but going around exhibitions with Pascal and a history of painting and that is just so beautiful. 
but we fall out. We fall out a lot and we argue. <laughs> and we've decided we kind of, we work the best way to settle our arguments are through exhibitions. Right. <laughs> so, so we'll have an argument about something. And I'll say, okay, well, you believe that point. Let's do a show around it. I'll, I'll, you, you champion your point. I champion, you know, the other side and we'll see how it gets. And, you know, and it's been absolutely brilliant because he is very passionate. He's very knowing. And we clash and it's beautiful. Even we, we did a show in um we did a show in Switzerland and it was abstraction versus figuration. And even that show taught me that the Swiss, what they call abstraction is not what I call abstraction. What I call Williamson, the Swiss called abstraction. So even at the show, there were people coming in going, Well, this isn't really abstraction. I'm going, whoa, what's going on here? And even that little tickle was absolutely brilliant. But even during that show, there's a really great film of me and Pascal really going at it because we had this argument on the install and we are just, there are so much S flying around. But it's absolutely brilliant because, you know, we're coming from different things, different places. We have different aesthetics, different political ideas. And then we have this thing called art where we can actually get at a table and get to the fuck with different ideas and really agree not to disagree you know we really and, it, and it's absolutely brilliant and it's been yeah it, it's been it's been really fulfilling to do that so the space we've got is in this cafe called finch cafe in, in hackney and and we kind of we don't use it as our space we use it's purely as an opportunity and so, you know, we did a show, we did a show, what is it? It's about names. And it was, we took all the names of the artists out and we did this show. So no one could just come on the names and go, oh, right, so-and-so's in this. A show with no names. And it was, but there was like, there was lots of people. And so you didn't see, so it was episodes. Everyone was going, who's in this? Well, come and have a look. It's a show, have a look or don't have a look. It's up to you. You know what I mean? It's not like, oh, so-and-so's in this. I'm going to pop down there. Very good. Kind of removes the hierarchy as well, doesn't it? Yeah, it takes the hierarchy out. Well, it takes something out. It makes you make, it, it opens the door for the people that want to come and see rather than the people that want to read, you know, and, and that's and that's the thing, isn't it? But it's been brilliant. Uh, and it is good working with Pascal on that. And I probably wouldn't want to work with anyone else in that sense because it's just the the, the energy he brings and the conflict we have on it is just, you know, we spend lots of time drinking and laughing and crying. And it's just like, what the hell? And it's like, it's brilliant. It's very good. I love that. And tell me about how the name came about. The name came about because we were doing the building work in the, in the cafe. And um, Muneer, who owns the cafe, someone went into the cafe. Jonathan went into the cafe said, Muneer, what, what's Cedric and Pascal doing? And Muneer said... They come, they sit, they go. <laughs> and he said, that's what they do. They just come in, have a coffee, sit, and then leave. And so when Jonathan told me that, he goes, Veneer says you do this. I mean, that's the best title for space. It's literally come out of not looking for it. It's come out of his observation. They come, they sit, they go. It was so brilliant. It is very good. It's a very good title. It is. And, it, and, and the, you know, we we're thinking about the curiosity. One of the things that's been really beautifully curious for me was someone said something in a context to me about a country. 
and and he, and he used and it was just a very throwaway thing at the, it, was, it was an opening at the cafe and uh, and he said something to me and he said oh he said uh, i was going in how do you know this person and he said oh yeah 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 my country stole his country and i was going what a brilliant statement brilliant but then this idea about my country what does that mean and that has taken me on such a journey just a very question about when someone says my country what do they mean are they saying it's not yours are they instantly noticing difference do you know what i mean what what does it mean when you say my country to someone it's like right so it's not your country so i'm implying a difference and when you put it to people the the response coming back has been absolutely astounding out some people want to defend it some people want to explain it some people say wow i never thought about it like that it's a, it's just one of those things you don't think about but at the, that very moment of the passport of the thing it's the difference so in everything we are literally championing the difference and then going well how come we are so like that or we don't want to be seen like that but you want to if we want to walk around saying my country we are going to be like that because we are emphasizing difference for whatever reason, we're emphasizing difference. And that, I suppose, if there's going to be any great changes or anything that is going to start a change, it needs the idea of difference and understand what am I scared about in the difference? And it's the same, it's the same in art, isn't it? You'll get someone standing in front of a figurative painting and they can they will look at it or admire it. You put them in front of a non-figurative painting and the difference is too big for them difference is too big an idea and it's like so in rather than embracing it it's like it must be not good because i because it's different so it's not good and that is the same and it runs through so many things that idea i've got a toddler and we're going through an interesting right. phase at the moment where he says mine yeah and you know my country that's very possessive isn't it it's mine mm. mine it's not yours it's not ours yeah. it's yeah. mine and um, that the whole thing of sharing, sharing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm moving my hands backwards and forwards, held, holding my palms out. That sign for sharing. Yeah. That's what I'm constantly Sharing. doing to my son. Yeah. <laughs> it's ours. <laughs> but this is a point, isn't it? And some of my friends think I'm going too far on this. And I'm going, because, you know, I've got, you know, got children. And then Bonnie, uh, who's a lot younger, I really noticed this idea of mine and that. And and then and after the other three, you get you get you get to the fourth one. You go mine, and you go. This is very interesting. And a friend of mine, Jules, says you can't make your child a, a social experiment, <laughs> which I thought was good, which quite good. Because <laughs> when I was saying, but it's this idea, isn't it? That if you're in the park and you know, your child's got something, and another child who you don't know comes up and says and wants to play with it, and then your child says no, the initial reaction is share. Go on, share. You know, go, go, Benny. Benny, share the toy. And I said, that's that's fine. If I'm in the pub and a guy comes up and says, can I have your jacket? I'm going to go bug off. Exactly. Or, or I'm going to go, if a guy comes up and says, can I use your car? I'm going to go, no, it's mine. <laughs> and exactly it, this. It, it I really, totally agree. So I'm going, I'm, so I was going, well, so I think Bonnie should just have everything that she, that's hers and she hasn't got a share. I haven't got to be in the park and go, Oh, sure. And obviously, because I didn't do it, but it was just as an idea, as a as an idea. This thing of mine is very important because we 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 instantly go, no, share, share your toy with a total stranger because you're small. But when you get older, 
You're not going to share your drink with a total stranger. You're not going to share your coat or your car. In <laughs> fact, you're not going to share anything with a total stranger. And so the, the poor kids are being brought up with this idea of like, when you're small, everything's shared. When you get bigger, it's all mine. Yeah, exactly. I think, what the hell are we doing? That's so, it's-, it's so true. And I, I rather than, I'm trying, rather than saying share to Roman in terms of yeah. other children, with me, he has to share. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have to share everything yeah. with him. You know, I can't even have my own dinner. He like takes my plate and starts eating off of it. It's like, <laughs> but with other children, I'm trying to take turns. Can he, yeah. can that child have a turn? Yeah, yeah it's absolutely. And if, and if he says no, well, fine. Yeah. <laughs> no, you can't have a turn. Go away. Go away, child. We're trying to bring up a selfish kid here. Yes, we're exactly. <laughs> It's like, yeah, this sharing business is not for my. It's a, it's, it's a very just as a, but as a philosophical idea, it's quite, it's more interesting than the reality, because they've got to adapt and and hang out with people, so, so that becomes something for them. But yeah, but all these conversations, all these things, all these discussions, have kind of come to me through art, and that's the beauty of it. That's that's the excitement. All these questioning has come through the possibility of going to a museum or a gallery and standing in front of a Barnett Newman uh, or, do you know what I mean? And going, what the hell's going on here? This is brilliant. This is not, you know, this is not for me. This is for me. And it's just, it's absolutely just wonderful. It's fulfilling to a degree that I can't quite imagine, you know. I wanted to speak to you about your pink painting, which is a crushed car. Yeah, presented as a wall work, and the car was exhibited yeah. at Documenta. Yeah, I think in two thousand and seven. Yeah, and the cars were displaying recognizable brand logos, and you omitted the brand name and changed it with a artist that was exhibiting inside the fair. I love this whole project because it was quite a long project, right? So you drove yeah. the cars out there. Yeah. You exhibited them, squashed it. So tell me about it. So it was like it was it was really okay. So the starting of the car project, starting the car project, I was going through um, some personal uh, personal stuff, and um, there's a, there's a gallery in London called Million Miles an Hour, run by Dallas Sites, and Dallas was it's just is like so switched on, and and someone said Dallas likes your work, wants to do a show. So he, we did the studio visit. And it was brilliant. He 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 come. He was drunk, and I'm kind of going, "What's going on, man? You're already drunk." And and we had this conversation with a girl called Esther Windsor, and you kind of go, "Okay, he's drunk." Oh my god, was he switched on? It was absolutely. He was. He's he probably still more switched on when he's drunk than I am when I'm not drunk. Do you know what I mean? He was so switched on. He drank. He opened the beers. Just kept drinking. Looked around. Spoke. And then went, okay, yeah, yeah, I like the word, let's do something, left. And I was going, what was that about? Esther goes, it's fine. And so me and Esther spoke about it. I then call him about a couple of days later, and he just he just goes through all the work that he'd seen in the studio. Bam, 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 bam. But I had a piece of uh, a text on the wall, which just said, kiss your own ass because I'm not sorry anymore. And I was trying to kind of just get something out that was going on in my life. And um and and he says to me that you know I love that piece because I've written it on the wall. He goes, I love that, 
and we should, you know, do a show. If you wanted to use that as a title, I'd go, yeah, great. Let's use it as a title. So we did that as a show. And and someone, someone very fortunate for me, came in, bought the whole show. And that was really, that was really, that was really nice. And then what happened was the Art Car Boot Fair, uh, Karen saw it and said, oh, look, we're doing this project with cars. Would you do, would you do one? And she saw the show and then said, so I did a car project and it's like, okay, I'm from Essex. What do I want to do? It's like pimp up a car, you know, just that, just, you know, live up to your, what you enjoy doing basically. And so Vauxhall delivered me this estate, Vector Estate, because we were going camping. And I don't know if you ever bought a new car. This guy turns up with a suit and a clipboard goes, this is for you. I hadn't bought it, but they delivered it. And it was absolutely amazing. People have thought, what's, what have you done? What's going on? There's this brand new car on the drive. Anyway, I do this car project and I'm thinking, okay, what will I do? And, I, and the, so the very first car project was, it was brilliant. I looked at it and I went to galleries and I went to galleries and I said, right, okay, this is going to be the idea. I'm doing this project going to cost you this much money you can't ask me who else is doing it it's a yes or no and the first gallery i went to i think it was yeah he was the first when i knew it was going to work was a guy it was paginato paginato fine arts and gerald was there and we'd met in miami over a pair of trainers i never forget we'd met over a pair of trainers at this discussion and so we didn't really know each other so i go into his gallery he goes he goes hey so how are you blah blah fine and he says um i guess i'm doing this project he goes what and he goes, I'm doing this project. It's going to cost you this much money. You can't ask me else who's doing it. And, and you get no say on how I do your name or whatever I do. And he went, he goes, so you've come into my gallery. <laughs> you, want, you, want, you want a bunch of cash off of me for something I can't have any say on. I went, yeah, he went, I'll do it. And I, just the way he, he did it, just like lifted everything. And so the first car had galleries as racing logos. They had Victoria Miro, it had the Gozian, it had Chapman's Fine Arts, it had Flowers, it had Bernard Jacobson. It was brilliant. So we drove it, we drove it to Basel and it went mad. I just had people throwing their cards at me going, look, we want to do this. We want to do this next time. You want to do it? And I'm going, whoa, 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 no. Because they'd walk past it and they'd recognise the stickers and then they go, Gagosian, what's that? What, you know what I mean? Or, or Maureen Paley. See these names on the card. And then people go, what's going on? What's going on? And it was absolutely brilliant. And that was the first car project. And so from that, I then went to Documenta as a, as a guest with Paula, a friend Paula Feldman took me there. And then uh, Documenta is just, for me, the Blue Sky exhibition. It is the one, it's just blue sky. All the others are grey and they're good, but Documenta, it takes five years to produce. You know, I spoke to Yinka there, when he Yinka was there that year, and he said it was amazing. They, they asked him what ideas he had, and he said it was all possible. He's never experienced that before. It was just this, this thing in Castle. And so I went, so it's every five years, so I went back again, and then I thought, okay, this is right for a car project. This is really right. And so it was the document to 12 I did it for. And so I did 12 cars. And each of the cars had the door number for the year of the documenter. So 55 was the first one. And then underneath the number was the curator of the documenter. 
So it's Arnold Bode. And then, and each car had a selection of artists on it. So 55 had Picasso, Matisse, and it just went through art history. And it was just brilliant because you're driving on a convoy, you're driving these cars and people kind of, you know, the car thing is very political and, and people see cars with stickers on, they go, what's going on? And the public understand the logos, but not the names. And then the art world understands the names and not the logo. So you had this really beautiful mixing of the two things. And it was just, it was just a joy. We, you know, so many people mm. on that. It was like, you know, it, they just turned up and and they picked the keys up and choose a car. We le left London, got to a petrol station. That was brilliant. We got to a petrol station, a Bethnal Green, actually. I filled up the first car. Second car comes in, I fill it up. Third car, my card gets stopped with all my money on it. And the, I'm going to the guy, what's going on? He goes, multiple use in a petrol station. It won't work. That's it. So I'm calling my bank going, look, I, it's me, blah, 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 blah. And I come out, and by this time, there's a traffic jam up Bethnal Green High Road because there's four cars brought trying to get in. And I say to everyone, you're going to have to pay for your own fuel. And I go, here we go. Oh, no. <laughs> we left London and it was brilliant. And so, yeah, so when I came back, actually, there was two things. I should, I, what I should have done, which would have been much more democratic, but I was not thinking that way. But in hindsight, I was. I should have just given everyone the cars they drove. I should have just done that. And I and and for some reason I yeah I got selfish on it and didn't want to do that and wanted to hold these twelve things and have them and I what I should have done is I should have let them live I should have gone everyone just take your car probably it's been brilliant go off and let them just die die their own have their own lives but I actually strangled it by not doing that and then and then starting to crush them revitalized it for me because then. Two things happen because the, the names are in vinyl. When you crush it, the vinyl follows the metal. So the names become all ripple. So they stay whole, but just they curved in. Whereas if I'd painted them, the paint would have flaked off. So that was really beautiful. And then seeing it as a painting on the wall was just wonderful. This thing, again, about weightless, about taking the weight of something. And then the first time I showed them like that was at Carter Presents with Jamie. We showed three of them. And then we, we took the wheels off it and we realised we that's why cars have wheels, because they're really heavy. And we, there, was, there was about 20 of us trying to move this thing with no wheels into the gallery. It was a It was brilliant. And then, then yeah, we just refined it. And we showed it as uh, flowers with it struck on the wall. Yeah, and you had to wait the other side of the wall to stop the whole thing from coming. Yeah, down. yeah, there's a structure. There's a structure made that comes through. So the weight from the back of the wall and the car was just hung on it, like two big hooks with the weight on the back of the wall. Yeah, it's that weightless yeah. thing and just effortlessly displaying it on the wall when it just weighs an absolute ton. Amazing. You know, a lot of the work, for the, for the even for the galleries, or for myself, involves lots of fun, lots, lots of dialogue. I did a show with, with my first show with Flowers was was quite interesting because I met Matthew at a dinner. We just got on and he came to the studio and he says, do you want a contract or not? And I went, no, but what I will do is um, we'll do it on a handshake. So we did a handshake. And, he, and then he says, he says, it was brilliant. Like those old school galleries, Matthew was brilliant. He said, Okay, what I want from you is a fuck off show. That's what I want. It was your first show. So I went, right. I goes, okay, so what I need from you is not to worry about money. 
And he went, right, that's fine. It was absolutely beautiful. He says, that, that's fine. If you let me know how much you need. And then I spoke with Emilio and he said, um, you know, yeah, we can do that. And they just did that for the months up to the show and then just took it back off of when sales went, which was absolutely beautiful. And the show there was called Love Me or Fuck Me, But You Can't Do Both. Because we had this conversation where I was saying to him, look, you can do this. You can love me or you can fuck me, but you can't do both. <laughs> and, 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 and then and then, and then I, I nearly bottled it on the title. And I remember phoning his wife, Emily, going, is he going to be okay with this? She's going, he's fine with it. He, he goes, it's fine. And it, it did create some problems for Angela, but very light ones, but where people were a bit upset getting an invite. You know, which says love me or fuck me. But then other people are phone, other people are saying, Why not? They were calling why can't you do both? That is very good. Yeah. When I approached you about putting on this show, you actually said something that really stuck with me. And I've spoken to lots of people since about. And you said the reason that you make art is for it to be shown. And so you didn't look at my website. You didn't look at who else I was showing. You just said yes. (laughs) And honestly, it was so refreshing as a new gallery owner to hear that. And has that always been your stance about your work? Yes. Yeah, it has always been. I remember the very first show I did was with this guy, Charlie Phillips. And they didn't have a space, but they rented a space on, on Mile LeBone High Road. And I remember Charlie phoning me. We met. He phoned me and said, would you be in this show? I went, yes. And then I remember some other people who were a lot further on in their career, a lot more cooler, saying to me, oh, you don't want to be in a show like that. It's all West London. It's going to be chocolate boxy. And I'm going, but he actually called me. He actually likes my work. What am I going to do? You know, it was absolutely, it was amazing the response I got. And and I showed with Charlie and we've become great friends ever since, done a couple of things with him. And then a lot of the friends of mine came to the opening because of my first kind of show. And then and then Charlie sold a piece. And um, and then it was a big cheer when they saw the red dot go on. It was literally like a football match. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so yeah, it's always been it's been a constant. And I think that the minute you start changing that the minute the whole thing becomes something else. You've got to know what you want from art. You know what I mean? And I want the opportunity for other people to see it. And at that point, things might move or might not move. But that's what I want. That's what, that's what when someone offers me a show, it's about the opportunity. Like I can have it in my studio or there's an opportunity that someone else gets to see it. And I'm making it for that opportunity. That's why I make work. And yeah, so that as always, and, and I have to keep a check to make sure that I'm always like that. And that's that's a constant for me because it's really important. I, I know why I make it. You know, I'm very clear why I make it. And so when someone offers me the opportunity to share that, why would you go, oh, well, you show Malcolm McDonald and I don't like his work. It's like nothing to do with me. You know what I mean? It's nothing to do with me. It's what's to do with me is that I get an opportunity to put my work on your space and another person gets to see it. And that's really wonderful for me. And you're the very first artist that's responded to my space, which is very exciting with your grid, your chalk grid and... I feel like all my other exhibitions, mostly artists have given me something, I've installed it, it looks beautiful, but you're the first person that's actually come in and responded directly to the space. And it's such a unique space. I've been so desperate for someone to do something and you fulfilled my desires. 
It was, it's really nice for me because it is that thing, isn't it? That you make your work in a studio space that very rarely looks like the space where you're going to exhibit. You know what I mean? And so, and it very rarely has the energy that your studio has for whatever reasons. When thinking about sh doing the show with you, it's like, wow, this is a great opportunity for me to place this work in this space on a grid because it will literally calculate the space differently. And you know, like we said initially, when I when I made the little maquette and showed you, it was I gridded out the whole of the space, and it wasn't until I physically was doing it that I was going, "Wow, this!" It by not doing the whole space, it defies two areas within that space, making the whole space bigger for me. You know, and the way the work sit on the grid and the ones non on on the on the plain walls, the relationship between them is just beautiful. You know, so it's a way of just looking at going, right, this is my studio. This is where I'm going to be exhibiting. You know, what's the mess here? What's the fuck on this? It looks so beautiful for me as a show. You know what I mean? It's And the very, like I said to you, the very fact that what I'm getting out of it is that it is now questioning me. Didn't see that coming. That is a beautiful curveball. Didn't see that coming at all. So that's, so it's a win-win for me. So what do you enjoy most about your practice? Um, what do I, um, that's a, yeah, what do I enjoy? I don't, well, okay. First of all, uh, it's really interesting. I, it's because I see it as my life. So they're, they're just so connected. There isn't a separation. And I generally, you know, enjoy my life. I wake up smiling. So it's not like the driving job where I, I'm, when I'm not in the van, I'm not doing it. This is like, I'm doing it all the time. I'm doing it now. I'm doing it, you know, I'll be doing it later. Uh, it's constant. It's, there isn't a separation. It's just like, I enjoy, I enjoy the ability to be able to still move myself around and breathe. And in doing that, making work. <laughs> so it's like, there's, yeah, there's not, yeah, there isn't a separation on it, really. It's quite an interesting word, isn't it? Practice. Am I practicing? basketball if I keep practicing I will eventually be able to score more through the hoops it's it's not a pra it's like I said it's the opportunity to get it out there to be exhibited is that a practice I don't know practice feels like you know doctors practice do you know what I mean doctor practice an artist it's kind of part of the it's part of that professionalism, isn't it? The, the, the term professionalism is kind of creeping in and, and, and it needs to creep in for whatever reason. And I need not to not allow it to creep in. But I think practice is, you know, well, my practice is, um, yeah, well, I practice at chess because I want to get better at that. <laughs> that was, I definitely say I practice at that. But even at chess, I played someone the other day and I go, I don't mind losing well. And he's going, it's ridiculous. I'm going, it's a beautiful game. Chess is a beautiful game. I don't mind using well. Bloody Matthew Flowers has beaten me. It must be a thousand times. But I have won a game off of him. So still riding that high. <laughs> he can't say Cedric's never beaten me. So I know that this is going to give you another existential crisis. But what do you find the most frustrating about your practice? The most frustrating about it, I, I would say, is how is how people deal with the economics of art. I find that the most frustrating because it's something, that's the that's what I would say is the most frustrating. Uh, you know, artists moan about the lack of the economics, I find frustrating because it's not something you can control unless you're going to buy your own work. 
If you're going to buy your own work, fine. Okay, but you know that's fine. You can control it. But if you're not buying your own work, the the conversations around the economics of art I find frustrating. That that would be the thing I find frustrating when you enter and and that becomes this thing that I go, oh really? Okay, well you know why don't you buy it yourself? Then you won't have that problem. But what do you find frustrating about that? It's too much an energy on something you can't control. That's the thing about it. You, you know, you've only got so much energy and you've got to put it into things that's going to really benefit you as a person and your work. And I think the moan on the economics does not do that. It might make you drive another car or have a bigger house or or go swimming more, but it doesn't, it doesn't put the thing into the work for me. You know, so that's what I find frustrating about it. Because then you, you're never able to, well, for the people, I, when I come across it, then they're never able to enjoy where they are because it's constantly about where you're not. And that's the thing. That's the whole frustration. You know, that's that's, that's the most frustrating part of it for me. Yeah, I think that's quite a frustrating you thing know. in life generally, though, isn't it? People that don't appreciate where they are right now. Yeah, it is. But making art, getting up, you know, you, you're playing this idea of, the, of the, like a god in your studio. You're going in there and you're creating these things and bringing out these treasures. That's a gift. That is like, if you can't accept that as a gift, then you need more. Well, you're not, you, you know, it's like it's like when people say, it's like when people say, oh, um, they, they want to give you a present and you say no. And I say to people, do you know what? If you can't accept a present, you can't give one. Simple as that. You know, this thing doesn't work one way. Either accept the gift, then you'll be able to give one. But if you can't accept the gift, you're not going to be able to give one. No matter how nice you think you are, it's like you've got to be able to accept it to give it. Absolutely. Well, that's all my questions. So, Cedric, Christy, thank you so much for joining me today on the Liminal Gallery podcast. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. No, it's been great. Thank you so much. And a happy birthday. <laughs> Enjoy your cake. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I will. <laughs> Cedric Christie's exhibition, Infallible, continues until the 29th of June at Liminal Gallery at 34 Fort Hill in Margate. We're open Thursdays, 11 till 4pm, Saturdays, 11 till 3pm, and outside of these times by appointment. More information can be found on our website, www.liminal-gallery.com. Thank you so much for listening to Liminal Gallery Podcast with me, Louise Fitzjohn, and I hope you'll join me for the next episode featuring Catherine Trinatree, who has an upcoming solo exhibition entitled Again Again, which is opening on Saturday the 22nd of July. Bye for now. (laughs) 